this week. Brian Bellendorf, the general manager for the Open Source Security Foundation, joins us for a discussion around open source software supply chain security. In the security news, get variable strikes again. Attackers could blow up your computer remotely. Escaping containers, null D references, and faulty evaluations. 31 new CPU vulnerabilities for AMD. A look into Chrome. Santa, not so secure, secure booting. And malware included. All that and more on this episode of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. FlexTrack is the premier pen test reporting and collaboration platform, empowering your team to spend more time hacking and less time reporting. FlexTrack centralizes your data, streamlines tedious workflows, automates report building, and facilitates communication with stakeholders. To learn how you can achieve a 30% increase in efficiency and cut report cycles by up to 65%, head to securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack. Claim your free month of FlexTrack and get your copy of the Writing a Killer Penetration Test Report Guide today. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who was told he'd never be cut out to be a mime. Must have been something he said. Mr. Paul Asadorian. Welcome, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. It's episode number 770, recorded on January 25th, 2023, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. Mr. Larry Pesce. Yeah. To my left. What's going on? Same, same old, Doing same good. old. Same old. Hey, do you know why uh, keyboards don't sleep? Why is that, Larry? They, they have two shifts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Mr. Josh Marpet is here with us. Josh, welcome. I, I, Larry, just, you can't beat Larry on the dad jokes. You just literally can't. I, I, I mean, Josh, do you know how many ants it takes to fill an apartment? No, how many? Ten ants. Oh! <laughs> what does the Pink Panther say when he steps on an ant? Dead ant. Dead ant. Dead ant. Dead ant. Mr. Sam Bound is here with us. Sam, welcome. Good evening. I hope I can provide an alternative to these jokes. Yes. <laughs> we Mr. count on it. Mr. Tyler Robinson, who is my date to Shmookon, is here with us. Good to see you again. I'm glad you finally got home, dude. Yeah, that was an adventure. We'll we'll leave it at that. I saw you on. You were a good date. Yeah, thank you. You were too. And I, I like I saw him on Slack, and they're like, "Oh, he's still traveling." I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. We shared an Uber to the airport, and I left him in like pretty good shape. Two right? days ago. Yeah, two days ago. <laughs> like, I mean, we had some drinks before we went to the airport, but we were coherent. We were on our way. We got the thing. I watched him walk in the airport, and then it all went to poo poo. Yeah, it's a long ways out here in the middle of nowhere. Yes, and there was snow in between you and that it at was. home, wasn't there? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for a little bit of a uh, Tyler and Paul's take on Schmookon, tune into the next segment. Join our Discord channel to chat with our host, hosts, ask questions, customize live stream alerts, and more by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Discord to get the invite. Brian Bellidorf has founded and led open source communities and initiatives for more than 30 years, 
first as a co-founder of the Apache Software Foundation, and later as a founding member of both the Open Source Initiative and the Mozilla Foundation. Today, Brian is the general manager for the Open Source Security Foundation and joins us to discuss raising the floor for software security. Brian, welcome. Thank you, guys. Nice. It's great to be here. It's nice to have you, Brian. How did you um? How did you get your start in like you didn't start in security necessarily? Probably more starting in in software and open source software. Is that where you have uh, spent your career? Yeah, I mean, um, my parents worked for IBM, so we always had like a, a, a one of the early PCs around the house on which I learned to program BASIC when I was like in second grade or something. But then like didn't do much of any programming in high school except for like running this DOS program called Fractint that draw fract draws fractals for you, that kind of cool stuff, and then using it for papers and the like. But I get to Berkeley in 1991, and everything is Unix and the command line and email and FTP sites and like and then this thing called Gopher kind of comes around, mm -hmm. and you hear about this this browser called um, the uh, uh, Tim Berners Lee's original browser. Like Fire uh, uh, Mosaic didn't yeah. even come about until '93 or so. And so, like in this fermenting kind of like bubbling stew, it was like fun to be a computer science student. But I was actually having more fun across the bay uh, from Berkeley in San Francisco when I started uh, interning at this new magazine called Wired. Got them set up online uh, uh, with the first, really one of the first non-academic web sites out there and the first one to carry ads so i'm I've been apologizing for that ever since um <laughs> uh, uh, putting the first ad banner online um but uh but yeah I, i've never been like a, uh, i mean i've been paid to write software but the world is much better off without my code trust me i've been much more of like um a, a community organizer in a way or or somebody who was really just focused on how how do devs work how do they pull code together into this preposterous kind of thing which is like let's build this together online and give it away for free that was certainly not like what people expected from the software industry in the early 90s and it still seems a little preposterous that it works at all but it does um, and I kind of fell into the security role that I have now about a year and a half ago I've been with the Linux Foundation for five years prior to this I was leading a blockchain initiative called Hyperledger which is about, about like the way that enterprises use distributed ledgers and distributed systems to to, to coordinate you know between uh, different companies and the like in a way that deals with the issue of trust but I kind of passed the baton on that um, after five years on that. And this project was uh, kind of converting from a free project to one that actually would have some resources to get some things done. So I, um, I said, how can I help? And they said, let's let's put you in as a, as a general manager for it and, and blow the doors off it. So I've been following those security for my whole career in this space because you really can't, you, you, it's not ethical to be writing software without thinking about the security ramifications of what you're doing, you know, for your end users and the like. Uh, so so these issues keep, keep bubbling up, even from the earliest days of Apache, even from, you know, the small little thing that you write that suddenly you wake up and 100,000 people are using or 100 million people. That um, happens you know, for sure, right? Yeah. Brian, but, Brian, what was your kind of first experiences with open source software? There must have been something special that you kind of led you down the path of working for uh, open source foundations and, and the like well I, I you know as i mentioned in like high school i again there's this kind of really um it was fascinating i don't want to call it dumb but it was a simple program that ran on dos called fractant 
that drew the Mandelbrot set, the Julia set, the, you know, like 300 different algorithms. And you could zoom in on different parts of that set and get it to color cycle. And it was like a super fun way to see how like some very simple math routines turned into this enormous complexity and, and beauty. Um, and when it started up, like uh, I, uh, the, the, the splash screen was this scrolling list of credits, you know, thank you to the following contributors, this person, and here's their email address at Caltech, this person, their email address at Berkeley. And so this like recognition that the software you're using in front of you was built collaboratively for free, iteratively, like frequently, I mean, that maybe didn't wasn't as impressive in 89 as it could have been. But that was the first piece of open source code I used. And then when I get to Berkeley in 91, and just started playing around with email and, and learning about how are these systems built. Look, it was like Sun hardware and HP hardware and other like people who built the hard the the the, the metal. But but there was the BSD Unix distribution. There was um, uh, DNS and Bind, right? You know that like uh, and and SendMail and SNTP. And it started to feel like the fabric of the internet. Put aside like the hardware and even like the operating system, the Unix operating systems. The fabric of the internet had been built by technologists working together to share code. And again, it's kind of preposterous that it works at all, but then it's you kind of get to the realization, how could it have worked any other way? Of course, that's how we got to standardized email, standardized DNS, standardized web protocols eventually and the like. So so that was that was kind of my, my entree into it. It's kind of interesting with, um, what you said, Brian, that you had the you know sons and the HPs of the world. And oftentimes one of the first things we did was put open source software on them. If it did, I mean, I'm sure it came with a certain percentage even back then, but we would install, like you said, DNS, and we'd use ISE Bind because it was open source, and that's what and that's what we would use. It was the reference implementation. It's how you knew that you were um, doing the right thing, as you were using what everyone else was using. SendMail. It was, you know, it wasn't the best piece of software, but it ran. It was a champ. It, wow, you're being um, really uh, kind, Brian. <laughs> Yeah, it was um, um, no, it was just this sense of like, and 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 frankly, if there was a bug, that it would tend to get fixed because there were other people hitting that bug, or there was a community to go and ask, like, am I running this the right way? Is this behavior I'm seeing a bug, or am I just an idiot? Right? Um, and generally speaking, the communities around code at that time were pretty generous in terms of like being places to ask dumb questions, and that's I think still a hallmark of well-run open source projects is it's okay a little bit to be an idiot. Was it was it lines that said? that with enough eyes all bugs are shallow or was that was that it was eric raymond who came up with it we called it linus's law Mm -hmm. um but but i don't know that linus ever actually said it and he might even disagree um and and it was kind of said with this air of well of course there's enough eyeballs because look at how many users there are Mm -hmm. but there's a little bit of you know just because you have a lot of users doesn't mean you have a lot of people looking at the code and so I've always had a complicated relationship with that quote. Yeah, uh, I think it's 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 true as far as you can take aphorisms like that. But the, the big problem is we don't have enough eyeballs still per line of code. Right, because well, there's so much code. with it being the year of the Linux desktop. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, every year for the last thirty have been the year of the Linux desktop. I, I, I had at to least say, the I'm last sorry. ten. I couldn't know, resist. I apologize. Like, every Chromebook. I mean, Windows has been shipping with a copy of Linux inside of it for how many years now? Um, and and open source software too. I was like, I had this use case today where I'm like, I need to execute SSH on a Windows system. I'm like, oh, you just enable it as a package and it's there. I'm like, well, that's really cool, actually. It's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, now that or on like you know file server like if you have like a Synology box and NAS mm. NAS servers for example I mean they all will let you SSH into them and have a command line it's a little little bizarre I, it, it yeah lots of interesting consumer hacks to get command lines on I don't know if there, anyone's done it on a Furby yet but um, mm -hmm. I, I see people putting SSHD on televisions and things like smart yeah. TVs and was it the Fur stuff. the Furby source someone was talking about I think it was the open source security podcast was talking about the Furby source code was yep. out just, there just got leaked yeah it got, or it just got leaked or released I, yeah it, it was discovered let's put it that way oh well yeah that happens too <laughs> uh, but I want to go back to the, the eyeball thing for a moment like if we were to spend the time when we write our software and I believe Ron, you had a, a quote that it was 70 to 80% of code is open source in, in installed pre-installed packages. If we were to start, re everyone was starting to review every single line of code that you incorporated from other projects, like we wouldn't get any actual work done on our own software, right? Right. No, and you wouldn't be, there's no way you'd be able to do it for the same reason that when you turn on a light switch, you're not inspecting the cable, mm -hmm. the power cables going all the way back to the power station. Like in a modern society, we should have some reasonable expectations about how much vetting we have to do of the things that we depend upon, right? Um, and we should be able to have some assumptions and take some things for granted, like the solidity of the power uh, mm -hmm. uh, supply chain, right? You know, of the power grid. But when those things are threatened, then we've got to think about structures, economic or po policy structures or whatever that allow us to get back to being able to trust those kinds of those things, those things we, we can allow ourselves to take for granted. Um, so I don't think the path is telling everyone you've got to read the source code of your dependencies. I think the path is to go, how do you arrive at a point in being able to uh, actually trust the code you're running? What are the signals you should look for from the code that the teams who are building the code you're using? And maybe even further upstream, right? Um, uh, to understand when you can make it, when you're making a decision about what code to use in your project, are you using code that is run by a team that takes security for granted, or, or I'm sorry, takes security seriously, uh, or others who um, are are a little more slapdash about it? But and do I we, think that's key, I, one of the keys. To more do we reach a point, Brian, where we trust our suppliers and what they create, or is it really just a verification? of that that would inspire more trust well it was ronald reagan who said trust but verify right, right. and um i think the best kinds of trust uh um uh spaces are those where you have agency where you're um, allowed to independently come up with your criteria for what you'll trust uh based on and open source kind of gives you that for free anyways because the code is available you don't really mm -hmm. have much of a means to independently evaluate the trust of a piece of proprietarily licensed code or or even a web service for that matter you don't know what is behind the scenes of just an api right um uh, but uh but arguably when you you've when the code is available for uh, public uh, purposes, you can trust not just the authors, but you can trust others who can go in and scan that code, whether it's line by line or a formal third party audit or scanning tools or the like. And so a big part of what we're focusing on at the OpenSSF is how do we systematically uh, try to look for objective signals of trustworthiness in the code that we use and use that as a way to try to identify those projects that everybody is using um, and everyone takes for granted and just don't get the kinds of resources that they need to proactively invest in the security that is is really earned or merited for the role that they play. I mean, you could call it, you know, how do we find the next log for shell, right? Or the yeah. next um, well, that, that was my example too. And, you know, I think that you can use those signals to go, wow, there's only 
a thousand other people that have installed this app in the app store or this open source project on GitHub only has, you know, this has been around this long, has this many installs or whatever. And, it, you know, that's one level. But a lot of people were running Log4j, Brian. <laughs> like a lot. No, and I think the assumption is, well, since it's so popular, like it must be secure. And, and that that's not true. Well, and either. since it has Apache's, Apache's name on it, right, then there's kind of, I mean, that's why we have brands in this world is a little bit as a proxy for trust, right? If you trust Apache X, you probably trust Apache Y. Um, and so so I think, I mean, there's lots of that we could go into about like the, some root cause analysis on the log for right. shell. Thing. There was actually the report that came out last year from the U.S. government, actually kind of this expert panel that the government pulled together uh, 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 called the Cyber Safety Review Board, who issued a basically a postmortem on the log for shell mm -hmm. uh, situation. Uh, it's funny, it was the, the group that pulled together was convened under the same uh, kind of regulatory framework that the National Transportation Safety Board uses to pull together review teams every time a plane crashes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like, what was the root cause of that plane crash other than sudden loss of altitude? Well, this is the same kind of group that pulled this together around Log4j. And, and I mean, they came up with, with a myriad of different factors. It wasn't just the specific vulnerabilities in the code. It was also how that team managed the disclosure process and the, and the mm -hmm. remediation process uh, uh, that basically caught a lot of the industry off guard um, and happening over winter break last year, too. Mm -hmm. It didn't help. Um, uh, but, but, you know, none of the things that were found in it were incredibly novel, right? It was a combination of code that didn't check its inputs um, from user user contributed input right it just kind of blindly trusted it as it was writing it to a log um, another piece of code that parsed user contributed input without any sanity checks for format strings mm -hmm. right um, so both of those are two things that you'll see lots of best practices documents including a bunch of stuff we published say don't do right but but it did all right um, and then and called into this chunk of code that had been contributed 10 years prior, I want to say, maybe maybe uh, eight years or something, but this was the Jindy LDAP code that was brought in by, by a well-meaning set of developers who kind of contributed and then got busy with other stuff and left and didn't really keep it maintained. And everyone else said, well, that code just, none of us are using it and no one's complained about it, so we'll just kind of, we'll keep shipping it. It works, not, it works, leave it alone. It works, right? <laughs> it was like kind of, kind of a, um, it was kind of don't don't poke the bear, right? Um, but they also didn't have any reason to have to exercise that out of the system, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to like, like get that out or make that optional or, or anything like that. So um, it was a mix of these three things, each of one of which in retrospect looks obvious, but one of the things that they just never had the resources, those the developers working on it, which, and by the way, they were none of them were like like poor college students who um, you know uh, would have would have avoided the bug if only they could have been paid for it, uh, paid to work on that mm -hmm. code. All of them were working for companies that use that and lots of other modules, uh, and so there wasn't like an economic crisis here, but. To do a proper third-party code review on code as substantial as log4j um, probably costs in the order of fifty to eighty thousand dollars mm -hmm. to do like a first pass to find the obvious things like the ones I mentioned, or to highlight here's a bunch of code you haven't touched in a while. Yeah, it's pretty complicated. You might want to really reconsider whether you leave this chainsaw in the middle of this, you know, dinner cutlery set because <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's powerful, but it's kind of complicated. Um, and so there wasn't really that fifty to eighty grand to do a third-party code review. No one independently had that in their back pocket. No one said, let's let's fundraise around this. Um, 
And I mean, there are other projects that are able to pay for that kind of work. Um, I, I, you know, uh, but but that was just something that again, this kind of scratch your own itch nature of open source uh, didn't really, I, I uh, didn't really raise it to anybody's uh, attention that it was it was worth kind of doing at this point. And that's something that should just be done regularly, not just once. Mm. So do you, do you think, from an open source standpoint, we're always going to be a reactive culture or do you think we can get to the point where we're proactive with, with all the libraries and dependencies and ability for those libraries to cause you know security issues used across multiple projects like can we ever get to that point leveraging things like ai ml um, dynamic and static code review automated uh, pipeline reviews do you think that is a capability or are we really trying to just cut down on the number of vulnerabilities that are disclosed through open source well, we'd certainly like to uh, uh, cut down on the possibilities of future blog for shell incidents, right? We'd like to have some sort of baseline of quality, at least for the most commonly used open source packages, and set, you know, maybe it's even a little bit of culture change about, uh, I, you know, what are the expectations of open source software um, and the default base of security? I think actually, if anything, people do trust open source code, perhaps they even trust it more than it's deserved, <laughs> um, and that the better run projects have well deserved that that reputation, but there's a lot of stuff out there that is simply coasting on it, and that opens these kind of vulnerabilities for us. So the OpenSSF, I'd say the work that we're doing kind of falls into a couple different buckets. One of them is around measurement. How do you come up with objective measures for the quality of the security quality of code? And that doesn't mean, you know, for the bugs you can find, that means for the likelihood that there are unfound vulnerabilities lingering in this code um, or, or other weaknesses. So there's a project called Security Scorecards that is underneath the OpenSSF. This is a collection of 100 different or so different heuristics that you can apply to um, a GitHub repo and when you scan it to look for the kinds of things that security teams take seriously or other indications that the security team is, um, uh, or that this development team is, uh, 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 you know, knows their chops, right? Everything from are you using fuzz testing and the testing uh, scripts uh, to are you pinning your dependencies? So. Uh, um, you know, uh, some other dependency being automatically upgraded, you know, to, uh, to, to do something malicious, doesn't affect you, those sorts of things. Um, uh, so those security core cards create essentially a credit score for open source projects. And that's been run against a million different repos. And you can go to securityscorecards.dev to see the results of that work. Um, I, there are other things you could do. You could collect together information about when was the last time there was a third party code review of, of a given package uh, or the maintainers have the maintainers take taken courses on uh, on security training. Um, some of that is hard to get algorithmically at this point. Um, it's something that maybe we could uh, address, uh, make it easier to query projects based on that. But but we've got to be able to measure that kind of risk before we know whether we're making any sort of difference with the kinds of things that we'd like to do next. And the next thing to do is specific interventions to help uh, those projects that don't score as well on those metrics, right? Uh, so uh, things like helping staff up a security team in something uh, in like the Python Software Foundation or the Rust Foundation or otherwise, um, helping think about the adoption of um, SigStore, which is for signing artifacts through a software supply chain. There are um, proactive steps that projects 
at the small level, at the single GitHub repo level, or even at the level of foundations like Python or Apache or whomever, things they could do to proactively make the results of their community's work uh, more secure by default. And so the second category of things are standards and um, uh, uh, software like SigStore uh, and um, other things that we're doing that if they were adopted by more open source projects could actually, uh, I think, have an impact. And then the third is what I'd call capacity building, um, and it ranges from training of devs on how do you avoid the kind of common pitfalls in security when it comes to writing code. So we've got uh, some courseware up on the Linux Foundation's training uh, uh, website that's about 20 hours of content to help avoid. I mean, if the Log4j devs had, had seen that, they might have avoided at least one of those kind of three different different vulnerabilities that when combined led to the log for shell um, to simple guides on how to like get started on making your project more secure or how to evaluate open source code to see what is more secure. But then a really big thing that we're doing through kind of a, a side project of the open SSF called Alpha Omega is um, two things actually one investing into open source foundations to help them build their security practices through direct grants. We've made about $2 million in grants last year to, again, to Python, to Node.js, um, to jQuery, to Eclipse, uh, to the Rust Foundation, uh, to uh, um, help them all basically up-level their security practices as a way to demonstrate the value of that uh, and hopefully uh, get uh, a few years out, get their own stakeholders to pay for that kind of work, but just to get them over the hump of adopting some, some different practices and principles and the like. Um, and then the second major thing Alpha Omega is doing is trying to system automatically scan the top 10,000 open source projects mm. to look for new vulnerabilities and go and solve those at scale. Um, uh, things like, well, if this thing affected Log4j or if this thing is an old bug that keeps reoccurring, how do you systematically go and, and, and try to eliminate that bug um, uh, across thousands of projects at once? Brian, one of the interesting things is that in when we talk about the security of commercial <clears throat> software, we often say, oh, it ended up that way because they wanted to ship the product. And they want to ship the product because they want to sell the product in order to make money. So there's immense pressure on developers to get the code shipped. Therefore, they caught corners and it ends up insecure. I feel like open source does not have as much of that pressure. Maybe in some projects, none of that pressure. Yet we still end up with bugs. So is this like a moot point? <laughs> Can we just... Oh, I think I, I, I think if any any team, whether you are talking about uh, a corporate team that ships code with known defects or or just with like without doing a degree degree of scrutiny that they should for defects, if they ship it out to their user base and and put the burden on their users of um, dealing with 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 crap. You know, for, first off, they're likely not to be in business for too long. Um, Secondly, uh, uh, the uh, um, no, that's just. I, I mean, if you could know about that as an end user ahead of time, you would probably uh, be smart to avoid the products of a team like that. And well-run open-source projects take that seriously because they know that their reputation is at stake. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think the Log4j devs can tell you that you know they're incredibly stressed while they were responding to this yeah. crisis. Partly because they knew that they had the reputation of Apache that they were kind of trying to defend there, that they were trying to to, to preserve, um, uh, and and that people's trust in Apache projects or even trust in open source could be negatively affected by a bungled kind of response to all this. Or if if it came out that it was just 
you know, uh, a whole, way too many stupid mistakes in the code that would affect their reputation long term. So, so anytime I hear, hey, we didn't have time because we had to ship it as an excuse, it's just like, well, you kind of don't care about your either your, your users or your own future uh, at that point. Um, not to be too harsh, right? Uh, but uh, um, the I think I think I think we're done with the move fast and break things era in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, congratulations, you succeeded. Everything's broken now. Let's, um, <laughs> let's uh, fix it. Yeah. Oh, wait, slowly. That, that was supposed to go the other way, wasn't it? <laughs> oh. You've moved fast. You broken things. Congrats! Now let's um, clean up and 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 do something more, something for real. It was Brian Martin that uh, not Brian Martin, sorry, Bob Martin from Miter that came on and talked about how open source software is like a rock, and you put the rock down, anyone can come up and they can pick up the rock. You think it's more like a head of lettuce? Explain that. <laughs> that is a really good. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to bring up that metaphor. So, um, this like and I, this been something I've what is actually said for a while, even even long before I was uh, um, in the role I'm in now. Um, software is a perishable good. Software is not like a static. Uh, uh, um, I mean, we think of like dependencies and libraries, and it's great we're able to stand on the shoulders of giants and write awesome things because we, there's millions of lines of code underneath us. That's great. It's an illusion. Um, this this stuff de decomposes over time. Not only does it suffer from, uh, uh, you know, people finding vulnerabilities in code bases. I don't care. Actually, there's there's one developer out there who I I swear has written defect free code, and that's Dan Bernstein. Um, mm -hmm. But but everyone else, like their their software, I, if it's a hundred lines of code, I bet there's three or four lingering vulnerabilities in it. Um, whether they're exploitable or not or meaningful, I don't know. But but like code, uh, people discover these bugs in code, right? And that the more time you give it, the longer that happens. Furthermore, people find bugs in underlying dependencies. And dependencies sometimes, not only do they get taken off the internet, so you might not be able to rebuild, um, I, I, you know, they, they, they shift and the priorities of their own developers shift too. And so, you know, we're used to, in an accounting frame of mind, depreciating things like laptops, right? Mm -hmm. you're, if you're a business, you buy a laptop, you depreciate it over three years to zero because you assume that in three years, or maybe it's five, um, there's like standards in, uh, you know, in accounting for this. At, at year five, that laptop is basically worthless um, uh, uh, as an asset, as an asset of the company that you couldn't go and sell that for more than $100 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and we should, not only should we depreciate the amount of money that we spend building code as an organization, if you spend a hundred grand on bespoke development to build that CRM system, um, great, but uh, or, or whatever tool, depreciate that over three years so that you're not marking it as an asset, but we should go below zero on that. We should, we should say, okay, by year four, you are now one third underwater and that is a liability on your books rather than an asset. The whole big point here is we don't have a great way of expressing to the accounting side of a company, to the financial side, to the pointy-haired bosses, like um, software quickly moves from the asset side of the ledger to the liability side mm -hmm. of the ledger. Um, uh, and even when it's completely static, even probably even worse when it's completely static. And so finding ways to explain to the financial types the, the, the cost of technical debt, but also the value of updating frequently, um, uh, of updating dependencies, updating you know, I, I, the, the operating systems running on, even if you don't think you're vulnerable to the fixes that those, those updates are for, there's just not only good hygiene that comes from it, but but I think on first principle, you should you should update if you can do it safely. But I think I think that's how a lot of folks get in trouble with what we call legacy software and how it's a thorn in the side of the security teams, you know, around the world. 
and that's because they it's not it's hygiene it's care and feeding right it's it's taking care of a pet or like you said food like whatever it is you have to take if you just ignore it it's going to get really really bad and you're going to incur more we call it technical debt right i like the analogies better than just saying the words technical debt you have to keep you have to tell your management and i think it's what we struggle with brian is telling our management like it's great we created this awesome software but we still have to dedicate resources to keeping this software alive and well, hygiene. i mean you should you should feel comfortable using open source software that comes with a support contract, right? But there's if you're an end user organization, you're a bank, you're you're uh, uh, any kind of company that isn't in the business of providing support for this chaotic bundle of bits that comes from random places. If you're pulling those chaotic bundles of bits from random places straight off of GitHub, your developers, right, and working them into your apps, there is this standard of care you should apply, um, and it's it's captured well by uh, the I. I this thing I've heard some people say, which is that free software, it's not free as in beer. It's not even free as in speech. It's free as in puppy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yes. like you're given yes. this, this puppy that for free, that's great. But now you've now you're responsible for it. Right. And again, the good news is there's a lot of other people you can work with and, and leverage and, and you fix the bug once and everybody benefits. Right. You improve the docs once and everybody benefits. So we get this incredible economy of scale, but it only works uh, when people recognize they've got that role to play small or large. Um, and uh, um, actually the big news in the last few years has been getting government to realize that they they mm-hmm. need to play a role like that commensurate to their use of this software, um, not just as a some downstream recipient of it all. I hate it when my open source library pees on the floor or chews my couch. <laughs> That metaphor only goes so far. Right. <laughs> Wait a minute. Say that again. He said when you get open source software, it's, it's like someone gave you a free puppy. Okay. And so I said, I, I hate it when it pees on the floor or chews on the couch. Like like Log4J or yep. OpenSSL or Apache Tomcat. I mean, you say Log4J Apa- took a massive Tom, crap Tomcats on the floor, had, let's Tomcats be honest. had issues, Brian, but I think that it's because people run older versions of Tomcat like they literally doing the thing that we're talking about and advising not to do is they take Tomcat and they don't update it because it got way better as major versions were released, correct? The number of enterprises who are bragging about the fact that we're not vulnerable to log4j for the log4shell breach because that's uh, that affects log4j version two and we are safely back on log4j one. <laughs> um, you know, no, ignoring no, the fact that there had not been any even security updates for log4j one for five years at that point. Um, no, there's a false economy to skipping these updates. And maybe as devs or maybe as packagers or whatever, we could be doing a better job in making upgrades more painless. I know that there's a whole lot of people who like doing major API shifts at every um, you know minor minor version rev. But um, that's that's if you if you can make that less painful for your end users, you'd be doing God's work because the more we can get people updating frequently, the better. Well, but I think that's a. Uh... Kind of like almost like a give and take, right? The longer you wait to do an update, the more technical debt you incur and the more difficult a time it's going to be. Much like I am <clears throat> with my firewall at home. I've waited too long now. And now you're like going back through the docs going, wait, I'm 2.1 and I got to go to 2.6. So now I have to read the, how do I go from 2.1 to 2.2 caveats? then from 2.3 and so on and so forth. Like I've just made a lot more work for myself had you just kept up with the the updates. And I, I, I think that's a huge part of the answer, Brian, no? 
It is. It's also having a team that understands resiliency as a first principle. Um, you know, remember when people first, uh, when they first introduced Chaos Monkey, the the kind yep. of testing tools that that would randomly take down parts of your infrastructure to test that. Are you really as multi-homed as you as you claim to be? Right. Fascinating, brilliant, because far too often as architects, you know, there's the temptation to go, here's the one big database, here's the gateway everything goes through, and you think you're providing efficiency of scale, but you're creating tremendous um, uh, 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 fragility in the in the ecosystem. And so if you've architected things right, you stage your upgrades, you test them out, okay, we'll upgrade 10% of the machines to the new version of Ubuntu or whatever, and you roll that out and you measure, and it's painless because you've been able to, to engineer for results resiliency from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Brian, you mentioned SigStore previously. For those that aren't familiar, what is it and why do I want to use it as an open source developer? SigStore is um, actually it's software and a service uh, and, and a protocol um, uh, kind of all wrapped into one, but it's for signing artifacts through the software supply chain. When you pull a module off of NPM, it claims to come from a GitHub repo X, right? Um, but there's actually no rigorous connection between that claim and reality. Uh, it could be that somebody has opened a, um, you know, has jumped ahead of the developers and opened an NPM package. We rely too much on namespace, right? And typo yeah. squatting results. Right, right. Um, but uh, but also things like, you know, if, if you do have stolen credentials and somebody slips in an update mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, I, you know, other other things that are where, you know, we take for granted that I, I, um, the object that if you access some object over HTTPS, well, then it's probably the right thing or, or it's secure enough. Um, and, uh, you know, PGP does get used at the tail end of a lot of these distribution mechanisms, like when you're actually doing the apt get or, or signatures, like when you pull things down from, you know, uh, different distribution points. But, but through the supply chain, there isn't really like a systematic way to go, am I sure that I'm pulling together all the bits that I expect um, and that they haven't been frobbed in some way. And so, um, getting everybody every developer to sign all the releases with pgp was kind of considered a non-starter just for usability reasons um but also this recognition that managing long-lived identities is kind of hard to do mm -hmm. but if you have instead a a, a public ledger that you, um, uh, 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 when you create a release and you sign it, you put those signatures in that ledger, uh, and then that's available for anybody to be able to consult as they're running their CI/CD process um, uh, to check those signatures. That's a way to allow you to issue short-lived keys, uh, so developers can basically grab them as they need them, sign a release, and then and then not have to worry about keeping that private key around Brian, forever. Brian, is it signing uh, the? That sounds like blockchain, right? No, it's well, sort of, but not really. <laughs> Um, but it, we, it does use a distributed ledger. It's not blockchain or mining or anything like that or a cryptocurrency, but it is um, it is a way of distributing out um, uh, something. I, I, it's more akin to the way that certificate transparency works. Yeah, it actually yeah. uses the same same underlying infrastructure for that. But Brian, um, do they but, sign the the commits or does one single developer sign off on the release or are you validating all the developers with with SigStore? Uh, developers sign the releases, so so the the binaries that flow through and get assembled and, and that kind of thing. So okay. it's not on the commit, and more mm -hmm. than one developer can sign a release. Mm -hmm. So better than the signature that I trust on the .deb package that comes down through Ubuntu's repos. That's not as good as a level of check, right? That's no, validating that's the where it came true. from, right? Was 
I mean, that's like I said, it's there for the last mile, but it's um, uh, which is getting things from like an Ubuntu repo. But devs, you know, are pulling things from a lot of different places. So, um, yeah, it's intended to try to be pervasive through the um, through this through the developer chains of, of lots of different ways that people are building code and assembling them. I got you. And it's meant to be easy to set up for developers to avoid the process where developers have to, like you said, manage their own private keys and such. Right. That's awesome. Interesting. Um, where do we want to go next? Sorry, I just I had a mental blank. Um, we talked about Log4j. We talked I, about I Lattice. Was curious, yes. I was curious how this how this kind of next iteration of kind of the S bomb and governments where they're going to require an, a valid S bomb. How does that kind of play into the the whole ecosystem of open source and commercial entities leveraging open source as well as open source projects with inside of uh, enterprises or enterprises that do work with the government or the government themselves. So I, I, I guess I don't need to provide, you know, provide too much of a background on SBOMs for, the, for your audience, but, you know, I, I liken it to, um, like, you know, the, when you started to see requirements to put labels on food about the ingredients in food, like a bottle of ketchup, yep. um, you know, <clears throat> what's inside that bottle of ketchup turns out to be pretty important if you're somebody who's allergic to the kind of thing that's a common food additive, um, uh, you want to know that it's not in this bottle of ketchup, ketchup you're about to buy, that kind of thing. And um, the same kind of thing applies to software, right? And arguably, one of the things that made remediating the log for shell uh, uh, incident a year ago was that very few organizations kind of knew what concretely what software they had. And um, you can buy some expensive tools that scan your infrastructure to tell you, oh, it looks like you're using this. But Frankly, that's the kind of data you should be able to get from your own uh, build chains yourself, from your uh, from your own kind of endpoints, the stuff you're building on top of, and then from your own devs uh, for the stuff that they build. Um, and so SBOMs have been uh, presented as a solution to this, and specifically uh, I, the one that we've, we've used a lot at the Linux Foundation and been behind the development of is called SPDX, which actually started as a tool for finding, um, li for doing license conformance, so that, you know, if you're using GPL components, and you're using, you know, Apache license components and others, you're combining them in the right way and you're not doing things you're not supposed to be doing, like purely from a legal and compliance point of view. Turns out that you can attach other metadata to that process and uh, that includes things like listing every file that was included in the compile of, of that binary object or the like. Because log4j didn't exist as log4j.jar on, you know, the, in the class paths of all these apps. Sometimes it was compiled into other jar files, right? So, so you need some way of kind of documenting that. Um, the problem has been the tooling to develop that has been awkward. It's not been something that's been turned on by default in most tool chains. Um, it's not something that there's a great standardized way uh, to consume those. And there's not even great tools uh, that um, once you have all that data can do something interesting and useful with it. But all that is changing. There are now commercial tools that look for S-bombs and will give you information about it. Um, uh, there's better scripting for that. Uh, and we funded a lot of work to try to get that built into the kinds of tools that, that you know, predominantly 
Scala and Python actually that are used in the CI/CD uh, workflows in you know in a lot of different places. So it's no surprise that in the same reason it took government you know mandate to require that ketchup bottles be labeled with ingredients, um, you know, to make that like an expectation consumers could have of every object they bought in a supermarket, um, that government policy would be relevant here, right? Um, I, I, it's it's been kind of slow to get this kind of thing picked up by industry by itself because it is extra work and sometimes it can be a question like what's the extra value from that work um, just when you're pushing software out to people and you're sprinting to deadlines and trying to get features in and that kind of thing it feels like like an extra checkbox rather than something that actually provides differentiated value um, so uh, so government mandates on that applying initially to stuff that the government buys that they pay for makes a lot of sense as a way to bend uh, industry in the right direction in the same way that like the U.S. Postal Office Service buying, you know, 100,000 vehicle electric vehicles um, to try to encourage more EVs uh, being being manufactured makes a lot of sense, too. Um, uh, and and I think there's some safety and health critical industries, things like medical devices, where um, uh, they're, they're, you're going to see SBOM start to be a mandate as well. I doubt you'd ever see it as a mandate across all of software uh, or all of open source software. Um, uh, simply because, like, where do you attach that authority to? Uh, it's something that the European Union is uh, is banding about in this um, not exactly well considered um, Cyber Resiliency Act that is floating now uh, amongst the European Parliament. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, I, I think there's a lot of value to be delivered. But we've got to make it easier for uh, the S bombs to be generated as a normal, ordinary part of the software development process, um, and make that. If the same reason you have readme.txts or license.txts um, that our expectations are that those are at the top of every repo or at the top level of every tarball or anything like that. By the same token, um, the tools that we use to build, you know, uh, all uh, to compile and to build these binaries and things should be outputting SBOMs and inputting the, the SBOMs from dependencies by default. Mm. And we've got to push this upstream rather than leave it as like something done at the at the, the tail end of the supply chain. I if guess, we do I that, then we're more ubiquitous. I yeah. guess my concern is when we talk about like labeling things, mine's more the cyanide and the Tylenol. I, I don't know if that was like a, a was it a real thing? <clears throat> In any case, yeah, it was tampering after the fact. It was though. tampering. At, so I'm worried about in in open source and particularly Linux, is whoever's packaging my software, is the one that that could be the weakest link in the supply chain, right? I actually have a higher degree of trust that, given everything you've said and in, in others working in a similar space that have come on the show um, this month, that the developers stand a much better chance, I think, of applying security. Then say, if you compare them directly to the package maintainers, you know, we've got Snap, we've got Flatpak, we've got package repos, we've got App Image, we've got Arch Linux, uh, Arch Linux um, repositories, you know, any yeah. mix in the languages that NPM. I'm more worried about the packager. How do we trust? Is, does SigStore apply to the, the packager or is that still they're taking software that's already been signed, putting it in a package and they can put a script in there that steals my keystrokes? You know, in some ways, I think what you're calling Packager um, is actually a little bit more like an app store, um, like yeah, a little bit more right. like yep. um, the, the distribution, final distribution point, mm -hmm. right? The um, uh, NPM, PyPy, there are things that are kind of language and tool chain specific like that. Uh, and then um, the operating system level app stores, basically. Um, and I think 
I, I think there's a difference between the two. I think, I think you know, assembling a bunch of dependencies into building Kubernetes or building a, an, an app, um, some of those will come from those kinds of places and you'll certainly install them by default that way when you're kind of using them more as an end user. But there's a certain amount of packaging that goes on upstream anyways for, for certain projects, right? A certain amount of assemblage into a, a tarball. Um, and so so I think SIGStore matters pervasively across that chain. Um, SIGStore uh, uh, and SBOMs matter pervasively across that chain. What happens at the last mile, though, is going to, I think, get interesting because there'll be pressures, I think, some of them government pressures, some of them customer pressures, to cause those last mile repositories to be more opinionated and to mm -hmm. be more of like the guardian of the quality and security. Um, and I think there's both opportunities and risks with that kind of evolution. Yeah. The yeah. opportunity is, yeah, I think those places should promote the more secure packages based on the objective stuff we've talked about, based on things like are the uh, developers who are uploading those packages, um, are they doing using multi-factor auth, for example? This is something that NPM rolled out for their top 200 packages, which they got some pushback on from the devs because two-factor auth is kind of a right. pain in the ass. And, but I a, don't want to dissuade people from yeah. from helping out with it. Like yeah, I was having too a, many, yeah, I was having a conversation yeah. with one of our mutual friends that makes software, and I'm like, dude, you make it for Arch and stuff? He's like, no, like not yet. And I'm like, oh, I just want to help with that. And then I'm like, wow, that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> and if what you're saying, Brian, like we need to have more maybe some rules and guidelines and um, legislation on that to go like anyone can't just package anything and, and call it a day. Now I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do it. And then we kind of defeat the freedom of open source. And the, the one of the most beautiful aspects of open source is that we can all help and contribute, right? Somehow we've got to break this tie, I think, between like the last mile distributors and file formats. Like, like I get why um, uh, snaps are different from from Debian, from from other kinds of packages. Like, right. there are semantic differences between. It's, these, and it's but, highly annoying, by um, the way, all the choices. I mean, it's highly annoying all the choices we have, but also I respect it from an open source sense that we should have freedom of choices. So come at it from from like the other end of the spectrum, which is the Apple App Store. Yeah. Right. So there's some great things and awful things about that model, mm -hmm. right? The great things are consumers can can outsource some of their pr trust and risk to Apple to like you know be that that big line of defense against people who would write malicious apps. But obviously it's monopoly, and obviously that means you know the app developers lose thirty percent of their revenue uh, right. just to the platform. And we have to play and by their even, rules. I can't get an app in the app store that replaces iMessage as my default text message. Like it doesn't allow me to change my default text messaging app. All sorts of restrictions that might have been well considered in, a, in earlier days, but but even even governments are starting to ask Apple now, hey, you need to provide alternative app stores. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think there's a lot of good debate about how do you allow that kind of optionality, that, right. that the freedom of choice, without it becoming a, a, a chaotic free-for-all, right? <laughs> Accessible. And so, I think, so I think we mean Android. Really should see <laughs> yeah. would be a choice, right? So on, on Apple, um, uh, you've got Brew as like the open source mm -hmm. distribution kind of like platform, right? Well, in essence, that's kind of an app store. I, I, is, I, yeah. I would love to see two or three others that you could basically say, okay, I'm going to trust this group of people because I either I pay them a support contract or I know them or or whatever. And I'd like to be able to have that be my primary way of getting, getting packages and, and building on top of them. Um, but having that freedom of choice and that agency between different ones, but then have that not require building different packages for each of those, right? Like the technical yes. difference, it's because it's more of an editorial level of control that they're exercising rather than a technical differentiation. Um, uh, so that's, 
I don't know. If I, if, if, if I think we will see that space, the space in between the NPM and PyPies and Linux packagers um, and the App Store, kind of like it's a spectrum. And I think we'll see a lot of evolution of that over the next few years um, in ways that hopefully will be additive to security and additive to freedom of choice on lots of different platforms. Um, but uh, but it, they do play an important role in trying to lock down more of the open source um, uh, security picture. Sam? Yeah. I, I don't want to let the blockchain slide by there. Uh, I want to say thank you for Hyperledger. I've been using it for years in my courses, and it's very good to demonstrate a sensible business case for the blockchain. And I wonder if you have any uh, speculation about where it's going. Is it going to fizzle out, or is it going to become something people really use? So people are certainly using hyper, Hyperledger technologies in stuff that is completely like behind the scenes and isn't like, here's an app you can download. Um, but from uh, supply chain traceability projects, predominantly in Asia, you know, and things, everything from diamonds to, to rice uh, uh, for digital identity initiatives in places, even like Canada uh, and the European Union and Africa, um, uh, for central bank digital currency projects. I mean, it's 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 a distributed system for uh, uh, building apps and built and sharing data in a world where people don't trust each other. And it's hard to understand when you come from a place that you believe in the strong institutions that are provided. You believe in the U.S. court system. You believe in regulators. Um, but it, you know there are a lot of people who don't, and a lot of people don't believe in other countries' regulators and 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 systems of law and the like. And so encoding that into software into technology, if it works, would seem to have a lot of value. Uh, and I think Hyperledger, it's taken a while, but like it's got mature code now that is being used in production and shares a lot of DNA with this, the code that runs on the public cryptocurrency networks, right? Um, from smart contract infrastructure and, and languages to some of the same principles around consensus management. Um, but the cryptocurrency side of that space, you know, allowed itself to kind of get hijacked by the by the investor and speculator crowd, um, uh, and and you know, and kind of got entranced by it in a way that was not unlike Pets.com in 2000, with um, but substantially more economic uh, kind of damage at play. But I still have a sense that there is something to public blockchains, to, to um, which inevitably are kind of the cryptocurrency types uh, that are, if, if we can find the true utility that can be provided by them, uh, decentralized storage and decentralized compute and decentralized kind of data query seem to be, for me, the ones that are much more likely than DAOs and decentralized governance uh, I, or uh, structures tend to be. Um, um, and NFTs, I think, will come back. This concept of digital assets that are portable between systems is kind of a no-brainer that we should have them. We've just allowed that, that term and that technology and that whole sector to be kind of hijacked for a little while. So um, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't write it off. I certainly follow things like the Web3 is going just great um, uh, blog that Molly White uh, publishes. And we should all be extremely skeptical about you know, what sound like fantastic claims, but it is a space that's still worth tracking in my opinion. And, and I think there is a, a bottoming out of the market that was necessary to flush out a lot of the, the bad actors and bad ideas. Um, but, you know, that's that's hardly the first time the tech industry has seen, you know, a massive wipeout followed by by something coming back. So we'll see. Brian, you well, still, I'm glad I, to hear that. Thank you. I see you're a Star Wars fan yeah. and you have R2-D2 <laughs> back there. C-3PO2? Oh, right. yeah. how, how different do you think Star Wars would have been if the Empire implemented non-standard data ports that R2-D2 couldn't interface with? <laughs> well, I think about that scene in Independence Day where they hacked the, 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 the alien, alien yeah. Over, yeah. Uh, over SSH or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. 
uh, yeah, obviously the world could be very, very different. Um, uh, so uh, before I do what I'm doing now, I, um, I started one of the first website design companies called Organic, um, and we built uh, websites for like Harley and Levi's and Nike. And in 98, we built the website for the re-release of the Star Wars movies, mm-hmm. um, wow. with like the new special effects or whatever. Um, and that was for Lucasfilm. And that was the first time there was like a website for Star Wars. It was like mm. starwars.com uh, or whatever. And in pitching the, the business, we had talked about um, organic because like Apache had started organic was one of the main kind of investors, you could say, in terms of my time and some other people's time to work on it. And so we'd actually talk about, hey, this is why you should trust us to build your website, because we know pretty deeply where the web is going from a technology point of view. Um, and, and and talked about, you know, we want to keep the web free from the encroachment of, um, you know, uh, 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 Microsoft, which owned 95 percent of the, the um, mm-hmm. desktop. You know, we wanted to keep them from owning 95 percent of the web, that kind of thing. Um, and it addition to it being just a better better piece of software. Uh, so when they sent us back the um, approval notice, they faxed us. It was like a, it was literally a fax. Um, this mm-hmm. fax that was in the same font as the scrolling kind no. of intros uh, to uh, Star Wars movies that was like, you know, the the the, the Rebel Alliance, uh, you know, in the form of the Apache Software Foundation and uh, led by, you know, uh, Brian Skywalker or whatever, do forces against, uh, you know, uh, Darth, uh, um, Darth Gates and yeah. the, uh, <laughs> Microsoft, you know, it was hilarious um but uh yeah that, that, did you uh, save did you um, save it do you still have that there. do you still have uh, the facts? yeah it, it's it's buried in files somewhere i gotta i gotta um, scan it and put it up but yeah. that's awesome that's, that's really awesome. awesome uh brian I mean, except, I mean, we're, we're not star wars nerds at all no yeah not at all right um <clears throat> brian i just have five questions left for you, you ready to play five questions with security weekly okay there is no right or wrong answer uh three words to describe yourself a very proud dad. If you were a serial, I, I have a daughter. Like the, my, my seven-year-old daughter is the center of my 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 world right now. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, bravo, bravo, well done, sir. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? A really bad sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? See, that's a recursive answer. You see. Um, but yes. anyways, um, what was the if question? you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Oh, these are so personal. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> these are so personal. That's a great title for a book. It is. That's, it. That's, a, good, that's a good answer. Uh, oh, man. Uh, I'm going to take this way too seriously. I, I don't know. Um, uh, how to get really lucky in life and, and, and make sure that you pay it forward. What is your favorite hacker movie? War games. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Uh, two celebrities to be my parents. Uh, I don't think he'd be a very good dad, but Anthony Bourdain is certainly um, <laughs> somebody I, I respect and love, and kind of see I mean, just like the way he gets involved in like the, the the local stories of the people making making the food that he's eating. Right? I mean, I like getting behind the local stories of the teams that are building the code that yeah. that uh, um, sits behind open source code. Um, yeah, uh, I'll just leave it at one. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it could be. Del- it could be. I mean, technically, it takes two to you. You have a child. Yeah, like, so it could be double uh, Anthony Bourdain. That's, like, right. that's totally I cool. And I know I don't have to limit it to certain gender either. No, um, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I'd argue you, because it, we because celebrity is very widely there, there's a very broad definition to that. Oh yeah, I, we like the loosest term of celebrity. I mean, is what we, your own parents could question. be considered celebrities right. in your own mind. I'd argue that. 
Um, now, Old Yeller was a celebrity. So, mm. I mean, we were equal opportunity employers here. <laughs> He's sticking with the one, though. Yep, that's, that's fine. fine. Brian, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. With that, we'll take a short break, come back, and talk about the security news. Stay tuned. Woohoo!